Special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. Hi, I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And I'm Charles Epting of H.R. Harmer in New York City. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. Now, I've said that I'm excited about every guest that we've had so far. <laughs> but when you first pitched this uh, idea, this, this concept of the podcast to me, uh, I was driving out to Long Island. And uh, a couple of names popped into mind immediately. And one of them was our guest today. Why don't you tell us who we're going to be speaking to? Today, we're talking to Dr. Cheryl Gans. She sent me her curriculum vitae. It's, <laughs> we, should, we should run it on the screen right now. And it, it's like, um, like 10 minutes it, later. It'll take up two hours. She's just so tremendously accomplished in the world of philately. It's She's one of these people who, if you look at her resume, you're like terrified and intimidated <laughs> because she's just done everything there is to do in the hobby. Yeah. And then you meet her and Cheryl is literally no offense to everybody else in the hobby, but Cheryl is literally the nicest person in all of stamp collecting. When I first got involved in the hobby with the YPLF and, and the APS and everything, Cheryl was, I, I didn't even realize how accomplished she was until like years mm -hmm. later. Cause I yeah. thought it was someone who's being really nice to me. And, <laughs> you know, I met her at a show and then, you know, a couple of, couple of days later, she's mailed me a signed copy of one of her books. And she always responds by emails. Any question I have, um, I didn't realize this was, you know, I, I would have been uh, much more nervous had I had I realized. Uh, but but that's how how humble and down to earth mm -hmm. and just kind Cheryl is. She's she's the best. I am so excited we're getting a chance to talk to her. Um, I always get so excited when I see her at a show, and she's one of these people I've been missing. Yeah, you know, I you know, miss a lot of things about shows, but um, Cheryl is certainly one of the highlights of any show that she's at. Yeah. And um, I don't think I've seen her since Chicago PEX last year. So I'm excited to, in a way, get to see her and virtually catch up with her and, and hear what she's been up to. Yeah. And before we get started with this episode, I know I usually do this on the outros for most episodes where we have a visual component. But I think I'd try something a bit different for this one and, and mention on the intro that there's going to be a visual component to this episode. And she's actually going to do something we haven't done before where she's going to share with us parts of her personal collection, some favorite parts of her personal collection. Which I'm excited to see because whenever Cheryl exhibits or even just buy something new at a show, it's always really interesting. It's not yeah. just, you know, um, it, it, there's always a story behind it. There's always a lot to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to see what she pulled together. You didn't share the slides with me before no. uh, the talk. So this is, this is all new to me and mm -hmm. I'm really excited for that. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this, you know, like I'm a, like I'm a listener or a viewer. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be great. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it without further ado. Let's get her in. Let's bring and, her on. Uh, start talking about everything she has to say. All right, here we go. Hi. Hey, Michael. Absolutely. How are hey, you Charles. doing? I can see you. How are you doing, Cheryl? Great. How are you? Can't complain. Good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> How have you been? Me personally? Yes. I'm actually doing well through this entire um, crazy year because I'm writing a book. And it meant that because I'm not traveling, I'm on eight boards. So I don't have to travel to conventions and everything's by Zoom, which means I have a lot more time at home to work on this project. So um, it's been good for me. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, thank you for, so much for, for joining us, for doing this. Yeah. And, well, uh, meeting us. Meeting thank us. you for considering me. So, yeah. <laughs> of course, of course. You were one of the first people when Michael pitched this to me. You mm. were one of the first people that came to mind, and and we're sorry that it's taken so long to to oh. schedule it. But you were you were at the top <laughs> of our list. Actually, I'd rather not be the first. <laughs> so. we, 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 I, I, we, we wanted to figure out what we were doing before we uh, embarrassed ourselves with you. Right, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> to start things off, Cheryl, I feel like a lot of people in the hobby who know you know you as a lot of different things. They either know you through the Smithsonian, they know you through the you know Midwest Chicago scene. Um, they know you through, um, you know, Zeppelin philately. If you, you wear, and you, when you, you start off by saying you're on eight boards, I feel like you wear a lot of different hats in a good way. 
Can you walk us through your journey? Um, even, you know, uh, uh, you know, your, your journey collecting your journey professionally, your journey, um, you know, in, um, with your involvement in the hobby, um, sort of give us a, a crash course and what got you to where you are now. Sure. I was a collector kid, but, um, I, while I had stamps, that was an accumulation. Uh, I was more a coin collector where I actually organized. And I also collected seashells and other things. So my room was decorated with my various collections. And then when I was a teenager, my grandfather gave me some photographs of a Zeppelin. And I didn't know what a Zeppelin was. I had to go to the library back when you did that and, and find out. And because as a I was always working. I grew up in a family business, so I always had discretionary income even as a youth. So I would go to flea markets, and suddenly I started to find picture postcards and a couple pieces of ephemera. And I got pretty excited, and I thought I was the only Zeppelin collector in the world. And I did that for several years, and suddenly I was at some kind of a bourse or show, and someone told me that there was a Zeppelin club for people who collected mail flown on Zeppelins. Well, I never even knew mail had been flown on a Zeppelin. So I quickly wrote and joined this club. Two years later, I was the editor. Um, but <laughs> I, I joined and became very involved. And I was able to obtain my first piece of mail, which was the cheapest Graf Zeppelin flight cover you could ever buy. It was quite ratty looking. I still have it, paid very little for it. But when I held that, it was the first time I had held something that had been on board a Zeppelin and it was just powerful. And I've been collecting Zeppelins about 50 years. It has sustained my interest all that time. I'm able to continue to do original research on things that have never been published. So it's an exciting area for me. So I, research is a big part of my enjoyment. Acquisition is fun, but um, research writing and exhibiting are, are the forces that drive me forward. So in my life, as it fit through this collecting time, I started out as a college student in art school and to be an art teacher at a time when I couldn't find a job. And so I ended up going into the family business where I could actually make money to buy Zeppelins, which I couldn't have afforded on a teacher's salary at that time. And I could afford to go to Europe every year. So I joined the family business and was in that for 11 years. And at that stage, uh, I made a big turn in my life and um, ended up going back to school, getting more degrees, changing the direction of my career. And finally, um, the culmination of my career as a, a historian, a U.S. historian, was to get a position as a curator at the Smithsonian. And the timing for me couldn't have been better because I was there at the very moment there was an opportunity to expand the museum and take a little room that held stamps on display on um, album pages and transform it into a true museum gallery, it has seven galleries within the big gallery, put things in um, historical context, tell stories, use visuals, both um, film and large graphics, have uh, new lighting techniques to save the material so things could be on view, show more rarities and more material ever before. And of course, I didn't do this alone. <laughs> I happened to be the chief curator and the lead curator on the gallery. But the museum had a team of about 30 full-time employees, and everyone had their own specialty. And at the beginning of the process, we held a meeting about what would be the ideal stamp gallery in a museum. And we were able to do about 85% of what staff thought should be done. And um, it was an incredibly rewarding experience. It took seven years to do it before we opened. Um, the great thing is other than museum money and staff time, all the outside money came from philatelists. And of course, Bill Gross was the major donor, but so many other major donors as well. And the idea that stamp collectors could put on this kind of a caliber exhibit set new worldwide standards was just 
just amazing. I was just so lucky to be there at that moment. What were some of the uh, exhibits that were that were put on? Well, we have two kinds of exhibits there. Um, permanent exhibits, and usually permanent exhibits can be up 15, 25 years. And then rotating exhibits, which could be anywhere from three months to uh, two years. And <clears throat> so permanent galleries were designed according to what is in the collection and what people would want to see so that you could have um, an area that different kind of learners would learn differently, an area that would bombard you with visuals and maybe contemporary storytelling. You have another area that's rarities, area that's intense United States material, and another area that's uh, worldwide material. And storytelling, you know, how transportation, how does the cover get from one place to another? So we, we just looked at the good stories and the material we had and figured out what the public would want. Because you must remember, these museums aren't built for philatelists. Hmm. These museums are built for the public. And 60% of the people who walk through are families, which means in my course of being there for a decade, my work reached millions of people, if you count the people who came on site and who went to the website. And the idea that we can take philately and stories and make it so positive and exciting and target so many new people who've never thought about stamps before. So that that was very, very rewarding as well. Shall, you and I have a lot of shared interests, yeah. obviously. <laughs> But I don't think I've ever asked you before, why Zeppelins? Why did that capture your attention you know, so long ago? And, and why does it still drive you today? What is it about that technology and that era of our history that, that you keep coming back to? Well, um, when my grandfather gave me these pictures, it's because he had owned a Goodyear tire store and he had gone to see the Goodyear Zeppelin Corporation built Akron, and that was 1931. And so he not only had pictures, he had stories to go with him, and it tied to family history. I've always done genealogy as well. And I, uh, because I went to art school and I collected ephemera, I was very much a visual person. And Zeppelins are visual bonanza, inside and out. They are very exciting. It's the streamlining era. Um, my PhD was focused on the 1930s. So when people look at the different books I've written and they can say, well, at least don't have anything in common, they are the juxtaposition of art and industry through mostly through the Great Depression. And this is uh, a kind of technology meets design that uh, I find very exciting. And then as I studied the covers flown on Zeppelins, they are an entryway to the good story. And I, every time I would find one, I'd start to read more about it. And I'd say, wow, this is just everything was exciting and took me to the next step. And so it's just uh, never stopped. I still get very excited about anything like this. <laughs> so you say the books you, you've written, you've written many books on, uh, on, on Zeppelins and other topics, but you say you're also working on a book right now during the, the lockdown. Can you talk to us about that? Yes, this is my lifelong hobby book. I am a, grew up in the generation where we kept clipping files. So I have 50 years of Zeppelin clipping files and no one has done a book on US Zeppelins and airships. Now I'm not talking about German airships coming to America. I'm talking about airships f built, operated or flown in the United States. And while the American Airmail catalog had a couple pages with some of the well-known pieces, uh, there is, I have found in all my years, there's so much more that no one has ever put together as a book. And I thought, if I don't do it, I don't know who will. <laughs> and I've had so much fun. And I, I might end up self-publishing because I, I have a concept for this book. And, and it goes a lot uh, along the line of the Hindenburg book that I helped co-author, that was a history book with philately in it. And I think if we want to reach new audiences, we can't keep talking to other philatelists. We have to go out 
and reach people who are history buffs in different fields. So I'm writing this book as a history book that happens to have a male catalog in it as well. And uh, lots of photographs and uh, stories and stories with human interest. So we'll see how it does. It's a, it's a little different for a hobby male book. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds fantastic. When are you looking to, Oh, go ahead, Charles. No, Michael, you go ahead. I was just going to ask when you were looking to complete that. Well, I should have the manuscript done this year. And so next year I'm, I'm not a graphic artist whiz. So I have to find somebody to do the layout and uh, talk to um, two people who've recommended publishers that have published hobby books and they're beautiful books. I own them already. So I knew just what the work would look like. So I can see it coming out next year. Hmm. People are always fascinated. I feel like there's a huge lack of information about, especially the U S Navy's airship program. And when people, you know, people think of the German Zeppelin, but when they hear that we were, um, you know, making fairly decent strides here in America as well, I feel like there's this collective cultural void of knowledge that's really unfortunate. Yes, and I think people will be stunned when they see how much documentation I have of mail carried. Of course, a large amount of the mail is unofficial. You know, this is where somebody carries it in their pocket or they drop it out the window, and um, <laughs> it's part of the fun. <laughs> you know, not a, it, as soon as the post office collected mail, that's the stuff that you can buy for five bucks because too much was carried. <laughs> so, and there's a little story to go with it. So I love all this unofficial mail and, and digging out the stories behind them. That must- so we had uh, five U.S. Zeppelins, um, four crashed. We have... Um, a lot of Navy airships during the war before and after. And I have, um, I think close to 200 pieces of mail documented on uh, Navy pressure airships. They have a chapter on army airship mail and then commercial and private airship mail. That must be incredibly difficult to, to trace the unofficial mail. How do you go about and do that? How do you look for something that some, someone was carrying in their pocket? Or dropped out the window? Well, if I've been collecting it, of course, all my life. Yeah. But um, for many, many years, 37 years, I was an editor or co-editor of a Zeppelin study group. And so I was very well networked worldwide with other collectors, and we would exchange photocopies and information. And then uh, I mine auction catalogs and keep clipping files of those. And so over time, I've been able to acquire some beautiful pieces for my exhibit and collection, but also um, I'm just as happy when I can get a, a photograph or a scan of something that I don't have so that I can have the information. And are you discovering new things weekly, monthly, or, or would you say that you've pretty much unearthed most of the stuff that you're going to be putting in your book? I'd say based on my 50 years of collecting this material, mm-hmm. I'm pretty well there, but I'm very prepared when the book comes out, and no one's ever seen this listing before, that new material will come to light. And I'm very prepared for that, whether I do an addendum, a second edition. It will depend on how uh, sale interest is and and how things go from there. I I'm, I'm really won't know until the time comes. But, of course, I'm prepared that suddenly someone will say, oh, I have this, and I didn't know anyone cared. So. <laughs> Well, I guess this is as good a time as any. You brought a, or you sent us a couple of things to to share with us, um, to sort of give us a, a peek into your your own uh, vast collecting interests. So, yeah. Michael asked me to pick a few favorite items, and um, boy, that's difficult to do. But um, <laughs> you know, some people always say, "Oh, I have one favorite thing." Huh? I don't have one favorite thing. I have many dozens of favorite things. But yes, I did select a few things to show you because. I wanted to start out, most people think of me just as a Zeppelin collector. That's what I write about, and that's what I research and exhibit. But I do have other collecting areas. I'm a serious postcard collector as well as a cover collector. And I collect uh, local postal history as well for my hometown. So, Okay. Well, I will um, get this started. So this was the first item that was on the... 
Well, I picked this because this is to show you how I collect uh, my hometown, uh, local postal history. I'm a genealogist and I'm very interested in local history. That's what got me uh, moving toward history as a career as well. You can notice this is addressed to uh, Fagerwick in Door County. And Fagerwick was one of the post offices on Washington Island. This is one of two inhabited islands in Lake Michigan. That's where I was born. So the Fagerwick post office was only open for two years, less than two years, 1881 to 82. This is, uh, Chicago Circular Cancel happens to coincide with the exact two years of use. But I went... Um, 45 years of my life looking for a Fagerwick piece and wow. didn't find one. I'd done research and looking, never had found anything. Um, I've still not found anything coming out of that post office, but this went to the post office. And here's why this is so exciting for me. Washington Island is a star route. Star route is when there's a contractor who carries mail for the post office on a section of a route where the post office doesn't run. So the mail would go beyond the mainland, but somebody has to get it from the mainland over to the island. And these star route carriers have used all kinds of transportation to get the mail over. Unfortunately, this has no date. So I don't know if he walked over on the ice with this or if he rode it in a boat at that time in the 1880s or used to sail on a boat. But I can tell you this. The man who was the contractor in 1881 to 1882 was a Danish immigrant, Nels Jepsen, and he happens to be my great-great-grandfather. Oh, wow. So this is why it was so meaningful to me to find this piece of mail, because now I'm holding something that was carried by my ancestor. And I collect both um, postal history and postcards of Washington Island and its several post offices, and I've given talks on this, both um, in my hometown and, uh, and at STEP uh, events. And I find local history is a great way to bring people into philately. I write a series of articles for the local newspaper on um, postcards and postal history. And as a result, people have opened up their attics and shown me material that's there waiting to be discovered because they know I care. And I always have uh, interweaving the post office history with the local history and the genealogy history. Because when you're from a small community, everybody knows everybody. Almost everybody knows everybody's grandfather. So it's a, it's a great way to get people talking and interacting about stamps and collecting. That's, that's incredible. That's, that's really funny. It's a pretty small world or it's a small town. <laughs> yeah, there's about um, 500 people year round and then uh, summer residents as well. Wow. So I also collect postcards, but this happens to be a postcard that fits in my Zeppelin collection. So there was an airship uh, called the Akron 1911 in Atlantic City. And the goal was that this ship, they wanted to fly, be the first to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. Well, the technology just wasn't there. They weren't <laughs> going to make it even halfway across that ocean. So the first time they went out to try and make it across, they had an explosion and they destroyed the outer covering of the ship. So they had to take it back and repair the ship, rebuild it again. And then they cut up this outer covering and printed these pictures and it as postcards to sell as a fundraiser to help sponsor rebuilding the ship so they could fly again the next year. So it's pretty exciting to me to find these uh, pieces of actually flown on the airship, even though the postcard itself wasn't flown after the stamp was added to it. And then the next year when they attempted to fly, fly across the ocean, they just made it barely out of uh, Atlantic City and they had another um, f fatal crash and everyone aboard died. So it was only in operation for those two years. But it's an example of, of how this is like ephemera at the same time it's philately. And I love that kind of um, when the popular imagination gets captured on what's going on in airmail. I didn't realize there was an airship Akron before the, uh, the, the Zeppelin. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. And the reason was, they called it the Akron, was because Goodyear um, helped fund it, sponsor it. And I'm sure they provided the outer fabric as well. Wow. So just a fun piece. Yeah, yeah. A serious piece, but a fun piece. Mm -hmm. So this is another piece of fabric. This is from the second Akron. This is the Akron that was a Zeppelin built by Goodyear Zeppelin in the city of Akron. And this airship uh, crashed over the Atlantic Ocean off New Jersey. And so pieces of the salvaged airship received, you can see here, stamps, postmarks, caches. It's autographed by the three survivors. And these were sold by the Lakewood Stamp Society to raise money for the wives and children, the widows of uh, all men aboard died except three. So uh, this is um, a tragic piece, but with a with a positive story to it at the same time. I, not, not to get too far off topic, but I was just driving through Akron the other day for the first time, and I saw the air dock off in the distance. Oh. Have you actually been inside? I saw pictures of the inside. Have you visited, I assume? I have been on the outside many times. I have not been on the inside. It's very difficult to get inside. It's not uh, a public facility. Um, I've seen it with the doors open, so at least I have a sense of that. And once when I had a Goodyear blimp ride, it was over the city of Akron. He circled the hangar for me, so that was kind of fun, <laughs> too. It's, it's um, an incredible there, building. There's another orange peel style air dock, um, and that's at Moffett Field in California, and I have been inside that one. And then a more traditional style Zeppelin hangar is out at Lakehurst, New Jersey, and I've been inside that one. So at least I've, I got to visit the one in Akron, even though I didn't get inside. Wow, that's an incredible piece. And the, the terminal there is incredible as well, the, uh, the old airport yeah. terminal. Isn't that that's, wonderful on Triplet Boulevard? Yeah, lovely piece the, of Art Deco. That's yes. my kind of architecture. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> I think too. it's a medical supply company now. Yes. But we're taking good care of it. Yeah, they, are, they did a lot of restoration work. I had a tour of that just a couple years ago after they had done the restoration. But so many wonderful airports were built in the 30s. And uh, some are saved. Some have, like if you look at uh, in D.C., Reagan National, they took the old airport and then they add on to it. But still, so many elements of the original airport can be viewed. So there are some wonderful ones out there. I won't keep – We that's something we can talk about for a long time. <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah, won't, I, I won't sidetrack the podcast. Yeah. So now I'm going to move into the more traditional Zeppelin mail. Um, this is special to me because on the right you can see the kind of waxy bag that has sand – at the bottom to weight it down. And then that red, white, and black streamer, I've kind of folded and you can see it there. That bag was used to drop mail out of the Zeppelins. And you can see, I mean, this was mail that the Zeppelin company authorized. They printed the bags. And so at left, you see an actual piece of mail that was dropped out of the window. And it happens to be the piece that was inside this bag. I bought the bag when I was in my 20s. I didn't get the card until a decade ago. Wow. So I was able to reunite the card and the bag. This is from what became the American Zeppelin in Los Angeles. It was built in Germany by the Zeppelin company. And this is a card from the trial flight. And it was dropped over Flensburg, the hometown of Commander Hugo Eckner. There were three cards in that bag. This is the only one that's come on the market to date. And were you li so, specifically looking for this card or was it kind of... All my life. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow, um, that's incredible. You know, we all have our little wish list we carry around with us through life. And um, I never, never really thought I'd find it. Because so many um, rare pieces of Zeppelin mail were lost in World War II. And so this was really great. And a lot of these cards went to friends who weren't necessarily stamp collectors. Hmm. So you know how it is when you get a postcard from somebody, you, you know, you put it on your refrigerator for a couple of weeks and then maybe you cut the stamp off or maybe you throw it away. Uh, the rare person saves it. 
So I was very lucky this one had been saved. Can I ask where you, where you eventually found it? Oh, that's a good story. The, uh, the bag I bought in auction um, many decades ago, the one on the left, the people who owned it were relatives of the people it was addressed to. And they sent it to an expertizer. And um, I was told that it existed. And so I made them a very generous offer and perhaps too generous <laughs> above market. Because I wanted it. Right. But they thought, oh my goodness, if she'll pay us that much, we should put it in auction. Oh no. So they didn't sell it to me. They put it in a German auction. Mm-hmm. I bought it in the German auction for less than I offered them. So I was going to get it one way or the other. <laughs> right. As, you as tried Charles to do the knows, right thing. Auctions work when you have people who are determined. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a fantastic story. That is a really great story. Yeah. So this is who's, a who's this he guy? said should tug at <laughs> Charles heartstrings. Um, first let me point out the address. It says the USA. <laughs> because it's addressed to the person in the picture. And so this was flown on the Chicago flight of the Graf Zeppelin in nineteen thirty-three. You can see it was canceled on board. So the overprinted blue stamps have the postmark of the airship Graf Zeppelin in flight. And then a block of four of the U.S. stamp for that flight. But because they couldn't cancel a U.S. stamp on board, they used the flight cachet to cancel those stamps. So it as it left Akron, Ohio, the Graf Zeppelin flew over the White House and FDR came outside and waved at the Zeppelin before it headed on to Germany. And everyone on board took a piece of stationery and they all signed their names with a message of greeting to the president, put it in this envelope, canceled it on board. And so then it went to the German post office. German post office had to deliver it. So they send it back to the United States by regular means by ship. And sure enough, it got to the man in charge because it was one of the items in the H.R. Harmer FDR uh, estate auction. So uh, a very exciting piece for me because it tells stories way beyond being a flight cover. Is the letter still with it? I have the letter with all the signatures, yes. Wow. Wow. Uh, Passengers and crew signed the letter. Yeah, one of those just glorious things. And I was very lucky, a man who had actually attended the auction as a Zeppelin collector, as a young Zeppelin collector in his um, older years, uh, appreciated that I was a younger Zeppelin collector. And he wanted to know that some of the items he treasured would be carried forth by somebody else who would treasure them. So he sold me several just exquisite pieces. Here's another FDR piece. This is one of the great, great rarities of Zeppelin collecting, U.S. Zeppelin collecting. So you can see it's postmarked at Moffett Field. This is in Sunnyvale, California. This is where the Macon, that was the fifth U.S. Zeppelin of the Navy. That's where the Macon was headquartered, based. And so they had a change of commander and uh, Herbert Wiley became the new commander. And one week after he became the new commander, he took the Macon out to intercept and find FDR, who was aboard the Houston on his way to Hawaii. So the only thing they knew about his route was what was in the newspapers. They had gotten permission to make a flight out over the Pacific Ocean, but they didn't tell their officers above why they were making this flight, because if they didn't intercept the Houston, it would be very embarrassing. So in fact, they, um, the Akron and Macon, for those who don't know, were flying aircraft carriers. They could carry five airplanes. And these biplanes would hook onto a trapeze and be released. And so they could scout way beyond uh, the ability of the Zeppelin to see the ocean. And the idea was at the time, if there hadn't been so many crashes, was that they could scope out the Pacific Ocean and cover a lot of ground 
that sh ships couldn't cover and, and, of course, protect the ships. So as they're flying out, two of the biplanes go searching ahead and they find the Houston. So they fly around the Houston and, I mean, they, you know, right away they radio who they were, so they weren't an enemy. <laughs> and so they waited for the Macon to catch up. And then the Macon radio officer wired the Houston and said, can we drop some of today's newspapers down to the president? Well, you know, that was pretty exciting. They've been at sea since they went through the Panama Canal, so he hadn't seen a newspaper for a while. So they had pre-prepared two uh, floatable envelopes to drop, and each one had identical um, material inside. They had newspapers, they had a Time magazine, and they each had eight envelopes. Some were addressed to specific people, others were not waiting for their return. So one was addressed to FDR, one to his wife, and one to the commander of the Houston, and then five that would uh, be returned to the crew. And fortunately, um, when they were dropped, they were inside an envelope that was addressed to the clerk of the Houston. They weren't addressed to FDR. And that was important because when they dropped them and they were done with a tow line, then they dropped them, they ended up missing the ship and landing in the water. But the Houston sent out a little boat and, you know, picked them up. FDR sent back a telegram right away. Oh, my gosh, so excited. Thank you. Congratulations to all your crew. So the Macon turns around and heads back to base. Well, the battle force commanders on the Pacific for the Navy were not happy that Wiley had done this. But at the same time, FDR was thrilled. <laughs> so uh, the real commander-in-chief is FDR. So while on one hand, they were all proud of what they had done, the Navy wasn't going to let them get too much publicity out of it and certainly no uh, commendations or anything like that. So this is one of those pieces of mail. I've done a census. There are only five pieces that have been found on the market of the 16 possible pieces that could still survive. This one, um, this one's addressed to a mechanic aboard the uh, Macon. One of the ones that survived was in the FDR auction and that one was addressed to his wife. I'm assuming the other pieces addressed to FDR and Eleanor were traded or given away by FDR to other people and who knows what could have happened. But nonetheless, the postal clerk on the Houston took these to Roosevelt and he autographed all the covers. And um, so it's a great story. And at the same time, uh, you know, it's a, it's a Roosevelt autograph um, that uh, lit, that silver Zeppelin in the middle. I need to find somebody who can put this under one of those uh, um, uh, machines that looks at ink, because I have a feeling that doesn't look like any Zeppelin on any other special event cover. I'm guessing one of the crew members cut a piece of linoleum, and it's probably the silver paint used to dope the outside of Zeppelins. So I have Zeppelin fabric, and I think I could probably, uh, with the right person helping, compare the uh, cachet silver to the fabric silver, and I'll bet we got a match. Wow. But anyhow, that's uh, that's one of the great rarities of U.S. Zeppelin collecting. That stamp is killing me, Cheryl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I knew that you would like this one. <laughs> you should have left this one out. The <laughs> <laughs> so of course I need to finish up by showing a crash cover it's what most people think of when they think of Zeppelin mail and there are so many varieties to Hindenburg Zeppelin mail there's a great book by Dieter Later for anybody before you buy I'd recommend you get the book and study it so you know what you're doing before you invest that kind of money but this is one of the two onboard postmarks even though this postmark was not used on board, this postmark was applied at the railway station in Frankfurt, and then the mail was put in sealed bags and put on board uh, the ship and storage, mail storage, until it got over. A different onboard postmark was used for passengers and crew. So a lot of people like me think it's really important to have both examples because they the postmarks look very, very different. 
Um, this is addressed to a dealer. It's a nice piece because it's burned, but yet the cover is substantially there and it's not so fragile that it's gonna crumble on you. But here's why I picked this piece and why I think it's so exciting. If you look over to the left of the cover center, you see like a little green smear. And there's a couple other spots where there's some green smear. This survived because it was in a mail bag, tightly packed. And as we all know from a bonfire, you know, if you throw in a magazine, the, mail, the pages in the very center don't burn because oxygen can't get to them. And that's why some of these pieces of mail survive. But while this was surviving, something dripped on it or smeared on it. That's this color green. And what that is, is the undercoating of the girders. Hindenburg had a new um, undercoating on the girders that no other ship had used before. And when it burned, it turned like a turquoise green. And here you have a drip from the melting ship on this envelope. Amazing that this envelope didn't just totally disintegrate in the heat of that fire. Um, it's just a, a marvelous, marvelous piece. There were about 17,000 pieces of mail on board the Hindenburg. Um, about 400 survived. Of those 400, a little over 200 are burnt. And many pieces that aren't burnt were because they were in a fireproof container waiting to be postmarked on the return flight. So there are many varieties to these, but this is this is one of my favorites, and it's a showy one. Wow! Wow! How many Amazing. pieces of of uh, of crash surviving Hindenburg do you have, or the cover well, surviving the crash? Yeah, yeah, I have uh, nine pieces. Okay. Um, and each one is different. I mean, I don't just buy to buy. Each right. one has to tell a different story, and as I said, there are there are quite a few varieties to this kind of mail. And so having one of each postmark would be uh, an example of varieties. Um, there are um, different rates. There are different handlings of the mail. There's the ones that weren't burnt that were handled differently um, and received packet bowl markings from New York. There's some that uh, burned and also received packet bowl markings. Some are from passengers, some are from crew um, on board. And so I, um, I like to tell a thorough story and um, I've just patiently waited for the right ones for my storytelling. Well, let's, thank you so much for sharing all those. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Those are some really interesting pieces. So it, in your time at the Smithsonian, did you get to put together a Zeppelin exhibit? It was one of my dreams to do a Zeppelin exhibit, of course. But, you know, you're not allowed to um, <laughs> just create exhibits for yourself. Right. You have to create exhibits for the public and that are educational and that will draw and that are meaningful at the moment. And it just so happened while I was there, the Hindenburg and Titanic both had a big anniversary on the same year. And my um, uh, then curator I worked with, Daniel Piazza, he today is the chief curator. Uh, Daniel and I co-curated an exhibit on Hindenburg and Titanic. He did Titanic, I did Hindenburg. And we looked for the parallels in the two ships and their disasters. And it was a very successful exhibit and drew a lot of people. Um, we had people who had been at the site who came, one man who had been holding one of the ropes when the Hindenburg uh, caught fire. Oh, wow. Um, we had the son of one of the commanders come from Germany to see the exhibit. Uh, we had just so many different people come out of their way because this, they knew this would be such an exceptional one-time chance to see this kind of exhibit. And I was very lucky. I uh, contacted the curators over at Air and Space. I said, we'd like to do an exhibit on the Hindenburg anniversary. And uh, then I had to contact American History and say, we'd like to do an exhibit on the Titanic <laughs> anniversary. 
And neither of them were doing one because that would have been very difficult to have two museums in the Smithsonian mm. doing um, similar subject matter. So that left it wide open for us. And it was a great, great experience. And we just had a wonderful team work on that. And everybody got so into it. It was really fun. Is that your favorite exhibit that you worked on at the Smithsonian? Well, it was a favorite for a lot of reasons because I actually uncovered some wonderful research. Uh, the son of one of the survivors um, opened up his family archive that had never been opened to anyone before, and he let us exhibit items that no one's ever seen, including me. Um, that was a meaningful. I got to interview some interesting people. I was able to work with other people to acquire two major archival holdings related to the Hindenburg disaster to bring into the museum collection. So all that was meaningful. At the same time, I can't say I, it's my only favorite because I, um, as you know, I worked on with Dan on an FDR exhibit and it was the, really the first time anyone had told the story of how FDR used stamps to sell his programs. I mean, we all know he used radio messages but a postage stamp got into every home in the country. And he could use those stamps in ways that had never been done before. It was great storytelling. That was a fun one to work on. Love that. We showed just some incredible material. And then I'd say the third exhibit that I did that was so fun for me was I did an exhibit on uh, U.S.-China relations for 100 years. And before I I retired, I wanted to do an exhibit on something I knew nothing about or very little about. And at the same time, at, that's when we were learning that China had the fastest growing and largest number of stamp collectors in the world. And I thought, ooh, we got to take a serious look at this. What that exhibit did, um, and all our exhibits are online for anybody who wants to go. I mean, you don't see the entire exhibit, but a good story is still online. Uh, what that did is it brought in Chinese Americans to our museum to learn the story of their family history. And because um, they're the ones bridging the ocean there. And that was uh, very rewarding to see how it changed the demographic of visitors for us and, um, and got a lot of uh, good um, PR as a result in both China and the United States and in the Chinese American press for that exhibit. Hmm. So it's always good to collect something outside your comfort zone, right? And uh, learn something new, right? Yeah. So thank you so much for for taking the time out to meet with us. But just one last thing you're you're a member of the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee. Yes, I am. So I know there's some things you're not allowed to talk about, but some things that you are. Can you can you tell us about uh, your time on that? And I think this would be interesting because when people hear that, I don't know about you, Michael, but when they hear that I collect stamps, everyone loves to say, I've got a great idea for a stamp. (laughs) How do I, how do I make this a reality? And, and I think it would be interesting to hear from you because again, that's something that I get hit over the head with, you know, as if I have a direct line to the postmaster general or something, (laughs) just because I collect stamps. I I think people will find this really interesting. um, It's a complicated process goes through many, many steps. So a great idea is where it starts. We develop all our ideas from ideas submitted from the public. We may not do it exactly the way they submit it, but they inspire us to retool it to fit what we need. Um, The post office says they get about 30,000 requests a year for a subject. Now, we also get many school children who do it as class projects, will get petitions, things like that. But we actually, at every meeting, spend a good portion of our meeting going over every single subject submitted and and debating it and um, voting to move it forward to the next level or not. And a stamp goes through many stages before it ever gets there. And, you know, we can only do maybe 20 topics a year. And some of those topics are already slated like... um, the love stamp or Christmas holiday or something like that. So um, that means we have less than 20 that we can do a year. So what we're looking for, and, and we want people to submit good ideas, what we're looking for are ideas of what I would say is the best of the best and things that will have a national appeal. And 
be visually uh, able to translate to a little uh, one inch square. Uh, a lot of people submit things. Um, you know, my grandfather um, invented this thing that never took off, but he was he thought of it. Well, that's just not going to make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, think of somebody who did something transformative. They changed our lives and society, and people would like to learn about it, or they even maybe already know the person's name. Um, some subjects we can't do because uh, um, the post office won't pay for rights. And so some people have, famous people have maybe sold their um image or name, and that makes it difficult to put them on stamps. But subjects don't have to be people. There are so many great topics that still can be um, featured that have never been on stamps. And I have everybody say, we have a big, big party coming up in 2026, 250th anniversary of our country. And we uh, welcome ideas for that. I would just say, don't send us something that we've already done mm-hmm. because we're trying to think beyond that. Um, so, you know, an obvious one is, oh, the Boston Tea Party. But we put out a block of four for the Boston Tea Party already. And and so what we want to do is think about how do we celebrate this anniversary but try to tell some new stories so that the serious collector is going to go back and get all the old stamps anyhow. Um We'd like to try and uh, tell some good stories that inspire people and help them understand the revolution. Uh, Whole new generations need to understand what this meant um, to be a founding moment of this country with ideals that just didn't exist anywhere else in the world at the time. So So are people submitting... uh text or artwork or how are they making these yeah so you must you must do it in writing and send it through the mail do not send artwork we're not allowed to look at it because then you would have rights to the design so if you send artwork it never is seen by anyone who makes any decisions in the stamp program what i tell people usually is don't write three pages write one sharp paragraph Hmm. you know think of the old uh journalism idea you know who, what, when, where, why, you know, what is this? When is it? Why is this important? Maybe who would buy it and why, why should it, why is it worthy of being a postage stamp now? Um, One sharp paragraph will do you more good than three pages with a bunch of pictures. This may be a tough question, or maybe you have an easy answer. If you were deputized if somebody gave you the power to create any stamp or series of stamps right now is there one that you have in mind that uh would be your your pet project yeah (laughs) probably a lot but um we just lost uh ruth bader ginsburg um for women in our country i don't care what your political background she um was able to break ground in the law and did it in ways that opened up opportunity for both men and women to bring us forward to be a progressive uh, country for women. And, you know, as, as a woman, you know, could I have ever had that job at the Smithsonian? I don't know. You know, there are just, um, there are things that she opened doors for that glass ceiling that uh, I don't think we can ever count. And so, She's she's recently passed away. You know, she's not going to be someone they talk about for a couple of years. But um, can, I, can you uh, clarify? I'd say she's a favorite. I, I think there's a lot of uh, people have questions about this. Is there a law about? And this is a I, I'm, this is a softball question. Is there a law mm-hmm. about how long you have to wait? Because I certainly think she seems like a lock for a a well deserved postage stamp. Um, is it more of a tradition or is it a law? What's the, um, so at one time it was quite a few years. Now it's a limit. You have to have uh, been deceased for at least three years. Probably not a bad idea if it's five, a lot of reasons for that. Um, you have to make sure the person has a staying power, but, uh, the post office has to go through a lot of legal 
process with the family and estates. And of course, when someone dies, you know, that's not always immediately settled. And so that's part of it. The one exception is a president. And generally, a president uh, issue comes out the their birthday after their death. Um, but I would say three to five years today. But to be considered for that, you have to be a household name mm-hmm. to, to be considered at that level. Otherwise, we want to know their staying power. Well, Cheryl, this has been fantastic. Um, I, I've certainly missed seeing you at shows this last year. Um, I know we're going to so, all be so giddy when we can go back. <laughs> that first, sh- that first show back for all of us is going to be amazing. But this was a, a great way to to reconnect, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and and show us uh, a couple of things that I'm uh, selfishly very uh, jealous of. <laughs> well, I thank the two of you for doing these interviews. You came up with a new creative idea that's taken off, and it has a worldwide audience and. You know, it's it's good for our hobby for people to realize why people collect. When I was at the museum, that was the number one question from the public. Why do people collect? Yeah. We understand it, but not everybody does. Well, thank you so well, much. W- w- assuming Michael and I are still doing this uh, when the book comes out, we'd love to have you back on then yeah. to, to talk a little bit more about that project. Okay. Fun. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, philatelists self-publish and I think it's a kind of a minefield I'm going through right now. So even just the process of what does it take to put out your research is a good subject. Absolutely. Let's have that conversation sometime, please. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thanks. Michael, between you and I, um, I am more than a little bit jealous of what Cheryl showed. I think that show and tell component was fantastic. I really yeah. enjoyed that, but I enjoyed our entire chat with her. Obviously um, that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it was. It's, I thought it'd be something that we could try this time. A couple people mentioned, Hey, talk about other people's collections or something, please. And, and with somebody like Cheryl, we, again, I want to have her back on and we can have, you know, the same length conversation and not touch on any of the same things. Cause that's yeah. how diverse her, her background is and her mm-hmm. research and writing and everything is. So I think, um, yeah, it certainly is a, um, a trial balloon. Uh, no pun intended. That thinking about Zeppelin's, um, <laughs> I, I think I think it was really interesting. I enjoyed just sitting back and, and getting to um, look at I, a lot of the Zoom calls that I've been involved in. And this is great because it's what they're going for. But you sit back and listen for an hour or so. People talk about their entire collection. I think the fact that Cheryl just picked five or six really heavy hitters yeah. and told us the little stories behind them, um, you know, was was interesting and and um, certainly kept my attention. Right. Well, because Not people every see these chat doesn't. Right. Well, because see, p- people see these these items, and they, it's like a it's a cover with some nice stamps on it, but then just one little writing, and they well, look at it, right. and it doesn't look it doesn't look like it would be worth so much money. But then the history behind the item, a Hindenburg crash cover, yeah, that's easy. Yeah. People get it, but it's these other the Moffat Field one. I I see that, and I, and and I've been alluding to this. I'll, I collect the National Recovery Administration stamp. That's the little three cent purple stamp that was on that cover. Mm-hmm. So I see it for that. And when Cheryl tells the story, it's like gonna have to gonna have <laughs> yeah. to start. I mean, saving we see up. The, we see the FDR signature in the top corner, and you know, yeah. you think it's significant because of that. But then when she tells the story, the signature is like the the least interesting <laughs> right, part. Right, exactly. Of it. The signature is exactly. like whatever. Here's the rest of the story about how the Zeppelin found the ship at sea, yeah. and I love stuff like that. So maybe um, you know, every once in a while, we can um, you know do a, a visual component like this as well. Right. Yeah. It, it's it was super interesting. Um, well. To get it her story for anybody who's made it this far and doesn't know where else they can find us right so uh we are on um philatelypodcast.com which i i visited the other evening i remember you saying that no i went again oh you went again what for yeah uh somebody asked me for a link to the podcast oh that's nice and i pointed them to flat so now when you see a little blip the first time i went on the website and a little Mm -hmm. blip the second time i went on the website those are our two views for the month well and the guy that you sent it to I'm not sure. He, he left me on red on uh, Facebook Messenger, <laughs> so I'm not sure he actually clicked on it. He never, he never right. followed up. Um, so, uh, flatlypodcast.com is our website. Mm-hmm. I can confirm. Uh, yeah. I, I I saw it for my own eyes. We've paid our um, bills. 
It's still there. And our built our email is flatlypodcast at gmail.com. I still have not checked that out for myself, so I can't um can't confirm or deny. Right. I, I we can't put that on me now because I've actually sent you the login information. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. So flatlypodcast at gmail.com for people who want to reach out to us, maybe nominate somebody they want to hear from, maybe yeah. nominate themselves if they want to talk to us. Yeah, we've had a couple of those. And they and we and, been, and we've interviewed and some great. Yeah, they've been fantastic, and and we've interviewed people that other people have suggested. There's a long list, and we're going to get to you. We're going to find you eventually. Is we're going to track you down <laughs> wherever you're hiding. Yeah, as you're avoiding conversations with philosophers, we will gonna, talk. To we're going to get you. Yeah, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Um, no, uh, we're on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all Podbean. The other, yeah, all the other. all the other podcasts. And YouTube. Um, We're on YouTube. YouTube. YouTube's a big one because yeah. if you're listening to this episode, you don't want to listen on uh, Apple Podcasts. This was great as always. So let's let's do it again real soon. Yep. Let's uh, next week even. That sounds good to me, Michael. All right. Talk to you then. Talk to you then. Bye.